All right, well, good morning to you all. This week we're going to, um, again, continue our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, last week we did chapter 5. And uh, this week, as I say down south, we're going to back it up and hit her again. We're going to be reading uh, Revelation chapter 5, but we're going to start in verse 6, and we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. So Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And when you find it, would you please stand for reading God's Word? All right. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you this morning, Lord, looking to you for your help, your empowerment. Lord, I ask that you enable me to deliver the very message you would have delivered. Please grant accuracy, clarity, and Lord, enable all of us to understand, to receive your word. Lord, sanctify us by it so that we, um, as, as you have revealed to us in your word, so that we may be changed, conformed into the image of Christ. Help us today to see what the Holy Spirit is doing here and showing us the worth, your worth, and the worth of Christ above all else. Help us to see your providential hand in history, in events that have taken place and events that are yet to take place. Help us to understand your love for us and your determination and power to keep all of your people until the end, bringing us to the fullness of salvation, to live in your presence forever and ever. Lord, help us to grasp these things that we may be encouraged, that we may be at peace, even though we are in the midst of a very troubled 
world. Work it all out for your own honor and glory, we pray. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A couple things by way of reminder here. Um, I want to, um, I've, I've mentioned this verse several times, and it's coming to mind, especially again this morning. Um, so turn with me just briefly, just for a moment here, to uh, John 16. And let's, uh, before we get into our passage today in Revelation, let's, let's look at um, the words of Jesus here in John 16.33. Back in the 70s, and I've just heard about this. I mean, I don't remember this specifically, but I've just heard about it. Um, back in the 70s, there was a um, Bible, I hesitate to even call it that, but <laughs> a Bible published by Reader's Digest. Um, and, and many of you will remember, and I do remember this, many of you will remember the uh, Reader's Digest condensed books. Well, they decided to take that approach with the Bible and did a uh, Reader's Digest condensed Bible, um, which I think resulted in about 40% of the Bible being removed. Um, so um, not, not, a, not a good project, and... and, uh, and Fortunately, and I'm sure by God's providence, it, it didn't. I don't think it went over too well, <laughs> and and that's fine. That's good. Um, but here's what we might call, I think, um, just by way of analogy, at least, uh, the, a condensed version of the Book of Revelation. The, the you might say the Reader's Digest condensed version of the Revelation of Jesus Christ that we have in what we call the Book of Revelation. I mean, this is the message summed up. So I, want, so I want us to keep this in mind as we, as we move through the book of Revelation. Jesus says here in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, the things that he has made known. He is, of course, referring to the things he has made known to them in the previous chapters about um, his, his leaving, uh, you know, their suffering, the coming of the Holy Spirit, all of these things. I have said these things to you that in me you may have Peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And, and the verb there that's translated overcome here in the ESV is, is the, word for, uh, the verb for conquer. Conquer. And it's in the, the perfect tense. Uh, just, you know, it's just, it's, it's a... A thing done in the past, completed, but with abiding results. Having, having overcome the world. So, so I, I, like I said, I, I couldn't think of a better way to sum up the message that is given to the church in the Revelation, the book of Revelation, than this. I've said these things to you. That is, Jesus gives us what we have in the book of Revelation so that in Him we may have peace. Now, why would, why would He even have that concern? Why would, he, why would He want to speak to us so that we would have peace? Because in the world you will have tribulation. And a lot of that is going to be... Um, Unpacked in the book of Revelation in, in some detail. In the world, you will have tribulation. That is just a fact of the Christian life. 
So don't even think of it in terms of, okay, you know, we're in the book of Revelation and many of the things there are, are future. But, but don't think about um, tribulation in, in that sense. It is now for the Christian. If, if you're alive, breathing, living in this world, um, then you're, you're going you're to face tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. Some of that is just due to the fact that we're in a fallen world. So, so there is trouble in this world. Job said, man's days are few and full of trouble. That's, we live in a troubled world. It's a, it's a broken world because of sin, because of rebellion against God. This world is broken. The hearts of every individual, broken, distorted, messed up, perverted. So much of the trouble is just due to that. We're in a broken world. But then also for the Christian, we have added on top of that the fact that people will hate us because we belong to Christ. They hate us because we belong to Him and because they hated Him. They do hate Him. They hate us because of the message we preach. The message of the gospel, the good news of salvation. This is amazing, isn't it? I mean, you think of it as a Christian. The good news of salvation from sin and restoration with the living God, reconciliation to the living God. That is a message that is hated by the world. Because, for one thing, the world doesn't want to think of themselves as needing help, needing salvation, being messed up. So it's a hated message. So he's saying, I've said these things to you. These things I've, I've, I've made known to you so that you may have peace because in the world you will have tribulation. And the peace, notice, is, is in him. In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but, tribulation, but take heart, he says. It, not, here's what he does not say. Take heart because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect you from the tribulation that's going on in the world and you're not going to have to deal with it. No, he doesn't say that. He says, in the world you have tribulation, but take heart anyway. Take heart in the midst of the tribulation because I have conquered the world. I have overcome the world. So in me you have peace. Why? That is in Christ because He has conquered. He's overcome. The world did not overcome Him. Darkness did not overcome the light. Light overcomes the darkness. That's, that is true now, but it will be fully manifest in the end. And it, it'll be, it, then it will be undeniable for all when Christ returns in glory and uh, finally and fully conquers this world. All right? So now, with, with that in view, let's go back to Revelation chapter 5. And, and we're, you know, we... we Joel said we're going to back up and hit her again. Well, the first time was more like a drive-by because um, we, you know, we we just kind of, or maybe even a flyover. So I want to um, hone in a little bit on a couple of things here that we just kind of saw in, in passing the other day. Maybe we can kind of uh, drop the altitude a little bit and and, uh, and take a closer look uh, at a couple of things here. Um, now just just. Here's the setting, right? First of all, we're in the book of Revelation, which, as I said, I'm going to be referring to repeatedly as the Revelation because that's what it calls itself. 
What is a revelation? Well, it, it is something being made known. In, in this case, God is making things known that we would not otherwise know. These are not things that we could have figured out ourselves. I mean, there's some smart people in the world, but none smart enough to figure these things out. So these are things being made known by God, things that we would not otherwise know. He's revealing to us. And it's, and it's coming in a series of visions. And the one that we're in now is the second vision that is given to John. And I should say this way. It's, the revelation is given to Christ. Remember that? We're going we're to see that again here in a second. But remember back in chapter 1, verse 1? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So God gave it to Christ, to Jesus, to, to show to his servants. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So you got the revelation given to Jesus by God and then to John through, through his angel to John. And, of course, to John, through John to us, to the church, to all of the church, to anybody who, who reads this book um, and believes. The message is for believers. So he's, he's making something known to the church. And, this, and, and then you get over into chapter um, 4. Um, the, the first vision was dealing with the seven churches of Asia in chapters three and, and uh, chapters two and three, and then the second vision, which we're still in right now, the second vision begins in chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, "Come up here, and I will show you what may what must take place after this." So now remember that. First, this is the revelation. That is, God's making things known that we wouldn't otherwise know if He didn't reveal them to us. And specifically here, um, it has to do with things that must take place. That is, things that God is going to work out in history. John, John is told, these, uh, you're gonna, I'm going to show you things that must take place after this. Things that are going to work out in history because God is going to see to it that they work out um, by His sovereign will. And so the second vision begins there, and John is, is summoned, as it were, you know, come up, come here, up into heaven to the very um, throne room of God, you might say, or at least he's, he's seeing that uh, in, in a vision or something. And all of the focus in chapter 4, you remember this from a few weeks ago, all of the focus in chapter 4 is on the one who is seated on the throne. That is, in, in, in this what sometimes seems like chaos. There is one who is ruling. There is one who is in charge. You ever go into a, you know, sometimes this is, this is not, a, a, unfortunately, this is not a rare experience like when you're in a fast food restaurant and everything's just kind of chaotic, you know, and you're trying to get your, and you, and you begin to wonder, who's in charge here? <laughs> right? <laughs> Why is this place just all... Uh, crazy, you know, I can't get my order right and everything. Who's in charge? Well, sometimes the world looks that way. And so he's telling us right up front, beginning of the book, there's somebody in charge. There's somebody seated on the throne, ruling. Remember that? Actively and absolutely. In other words, he's, he's not a figurehead. You know, he's, just, he's not just there for 
um, for show, uh, for ceremony. He's, he's ruling actively. He's, he's actually moving things in a particular way. Bringing about um, events. Causing things to happen according to His will. And He's ruling absolutely. That's, kind of, that's a key message of the book. In other words, there is nobody who, who's above Him. He doesn't have to check with anybody. Okay, you know, what's the next move? What, or, can I, I got an idea. Can I do this? He, he doesn't have to do any of that. He is the one seated on the throne at the center of focus in chapter 4. The very th- throne room of God. In other words, we're talking about God, the Creator. And He's ruling. And then we get to chapter 5. Now, we're, we're still in the same vision. It's just the focus shifts a little bit. There's a little bit of a transfer of focus here. You've you still got the one seated on the throne. In fact, look at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written. So now you've you got the one seated on the throne, and he's holding in his right hand a scroll. And this is what we talked about last time. Just to give you the short story here, the short version of it here. I think this scroll represents um, the unfolding of God's plan or His redemptive purposes. Or, or say it another way, it, it is bringing history to its proper end. And that includes the judgment of the world and the, the fullness of salvation for the people of God. So He's holding in His hand, as it were, um, the rest of history. And, and you can pile in that. You know, you think about the, the for example, I said bringing salvation to, to, to its fullness for the people of God. So, in other words, all of the promises of God have to be fulfilled, completed, right? And what about justice in the world? There has to be just judgment upon the world. I mean, it would be a bad thought to think that um, the injustices that we now experience are just, you know, think of in general terms, the injustice that we are so accustomed to in this world, it would be a bad thing to think that that's just going to continue on forever. But it's not. God's, God is going to bring justice in the end. All right? So that's what this scroll represents, bringing history to its proper end, including the judgment of the world and the fullness of salvation for the people of God. And so John says he sees one seated on the throne holding the scroll, and then there's this proclamation goes out from an angel. Who is worthy to open the scroll? In other words, who is, who is worthy or deserving to set these things in motion and bring them to completion? And there's a search undertaken. And they look everywhere. No one in heaven, no one on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And that's one of those things, by the way, we look at that and we go, what in the world they mean under the earth? No, we understand. Nobody in heaven, nobody on earth. What about under the earth? Well, it's probably just a way of, of, uh, of being very thorough with the language. In other words, search was made everywhere uh, that there is anywhere. I mean, there, 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 there was no, we would say uh, in our idiom, with one of our idioms, there was no stone left unturned, Right? They covered every nook and cranny. Nobody was found worthy. But then comes this voice from one of the elders around the throne. 
And he says, weep not, or weep no more, verse 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who's the root of David? Jesus, right? He's going to be presented here as a lamb. A lion-like lamb. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's the root of David. That is, he's the offspring of David. Um, he is worthy. Why is he worthy? Now, a couple things. This is where I, what I want to zero in on. Okay, and I want, I want, I want to talk about his, his why is he worthy and then uh, the praise that he is deserving of. So, the lamb is worthy and, and we're given some reasons here. Okay, let's go back to verse 5 real quick. He has conquered. I mentioned that before. That's the, that's the verb that we get our word Nike from. You know, the shoes, Nike, conquer, Nike in the Greek. Um, this is the verb form. He has conquered. He, he, is, he is worthy to, open the, to take the scroll and to open its seals. He's worthy to bring all of history to its completion, its proper end, to bring righteous judgment on the world, and to bring the salvation of God's people to its fullness. Hallelujah. <laughs> I tell you, He is worthy. Why? Because He's conquered. He's conquered. Well, isn't that what Jesus said in John 16, I'm saying these things to you so that in me you might have peace because in the world you have tribulation, but take heart, be of good cheer, for I have conquered. I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. It uses the very same word that is used here. And so then John says, I looked in between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb. Remember the, the proclamation. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he is worthy. And so John looks, and what does he see? A lion? No. Well, yes and no. It's just not the, not the form he's taking at this moment, not, the, not the, the picture that's given here. But he is a lion. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So does he see a root? The root of David, the offspring of David. Well, no, that's not the picture, but although that, that is who he is, he's the root of David, offspring of David. But here's what he, what he actually sees. He says he saw a lamb. A lamb. That doesn't sound like a conqueror, does it? I mean, he, he just said, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's worthy because he has conquered. And I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's interesting. You know, there's a famous painting, and I was trying to remember. I should have Googled it, you know, because Google's brain is a lot bigger than mine and holds a lot more info. But I, 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 you may know. I, I don't remember who, the, who did it, but um, there's this famous painting of, of this scene, and the lamb is on the altar and the lamb is standing and his, his throat is slit and blood is pouring out. And I don't know if that's exactly... That's the, that's the way one artist portrays it. It's a famous painting. But, but it's, whatever it was exactly, it was obvious to him. Number one, he was standing. He says, the lamb's standing. And it was obvious that he had been slain. 
And why would an artist portray it that way? Because that's the way they did it with the lambs that were brought in for sacrifice under the Old Covenant Levitical system. It doesn't sound like a conqueror. That's what he saw, a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Which, as I said last time, is an interesting picture, isn't it? Because if he's slain, you would think he would be laying, not standing. But he's not laying, and he's not falling to his knees. He's not going down, even though he's been slain. The whole picture is, he, he has been slain, but he got up. And now he's standing. He's standing. He got up and he's standing with seven horns and seven eyes. And, and this is, you know, obviously it's symbolic language. And, and you, you go through the Scripture and you, you run into um, this idea of horns lots of times. I don't, I don't know how many. Lots of times. You, representing um, power, authority, that kind of thing. Um, throughout, I was, I was, a, a couple of examples here I'll give you. First Samuel 2.10 the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His king and exalt the horn of His anointed. And, and that, that kind of language is, is uh, as I said, throughout. You find it in, in uh, many places in the Old Testament in the Psalm. Just representing authority. Um, Zacharias uses it in, in Luke 1. Luke 1, 68 and 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. So he uses it there referring to Jesus coming as, as Messiah and, and ruler. So there's this lamb with seven horns and seven being the number of perfection. It, it makes sense to me that this just... In other words, he's, the picture here is per, perfection in power and authority. Seven horns. And then he has seven eyes. And we've already seen this a couple of times, um, parallel passages. Um, like, for example, we had the seven torches back in chapter 4 that were before the throne. And again, I think the number seven represents perfection. And here, the, the seven eyes that are, that are sent throughout the earth, probably a, a way of referring to the to the Holy Spirit, or maybe the omnipresent, uh, omnipresence of God, so that He's all, omnipotence, I should say. He's all-knowing, right? So you've got the Lamb with perfect power and authority and, and perfection in knowledge. He knows all. He sees all. He's got seven eyes, so, so nothing escapes His view, pictured as the conqueror here. And he went, that is the lamb, the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, verse 7 says, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now, you know what that is? Well, I mean, what's he doing? He's, he's, all of this unfolding of events, history in, in, you know, in, the, in the making, I guess you say, it's, it's, it's what's happening plus it's what's going to happen. It's bringing what, you know, everything to its end. Of Him, through Him, to Him are all things, Paul says in Romans. So, the whole reason that the universe was created and that you and I were created was to eventually bring us to God. We're of Him. We are, that is, we exist through Him. 
In Him we live and move and have our being, Paul says in Acts 17. And we're, we're moving toward a destination which is to Him. Of Him, through Him, to Him are all things. Nothing escapes that. You say, well, what about unbelievers about there, out there? I mean, they're not, they're not going to God. Yes, they are. They're going to face Him in judgment. Everyone is going to Him. You're either going to Him for condemnation or to Him for mercy and salvation in the end. But everything is, is moving that way. Now, who is, who is deserving, worthy, able to bring all of that to pass? Think about all of the promises throughout Scripture, for example. I mean, right off the bat, by the mercy of God, you, you've got sin in the Garden of Eden. And right off the bat, God promises a deliverer who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Remember that? He'll bruise his heel and he'll crush his head. The serpent's going to bruise his heel, but he'll crush the serpent's head. And then all the way down through the, through the, through the ages, you know, God's going to raise up a people. He creates the Hebrew nation, promise, makes promises to Abraham. Um, your seed's going to be more abundant than, than the stars in the heaven. No, no, nobody's even going to be able to count them. And you get all the way down to the New, New Testament and, you know, the, the, the fuller picture. In fact, the fulfillment in Christ... And now we have the understanding that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ and we're promised eternal life. Because I live, Jesus said, you will also live. But how do we know those promises are, are sure? Who, who's able to bring them to pass? Look, I could stand up here and, uh, and promise you all kinds of things. And what assurance do you have that any of it will come to pass. Well, not very much, you know, because my, my, my power is, knowledge is all limited. But somebody's got to bring these things to pass. That's, that's the whole picture here. The Lamb, who was slain but is now standing, has conquered, and therefore He's worthy to take the scroll. That is, to bring history to its proper end, including the condemnation of the world and the salvation of the people of God. Now, here's where we saw this before. Look, look, look again real quick back in chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him. Do you see that? The revelation which God gave Him to show His servants. Now, I think that's what John is seeing over here in chapter 5, in verse 7. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That is, God gave him the revelation that he is now giving to John and through John to us. And the revelation, again, is the bringing of history to its proper end. Now, I don't have time to go there, but if you go, if you go and look at Daniel chapter 7... Verses 13 and 14, Daniel sees this as well in a vision. And authority, a kingdom and authority is given to one like the Son of Man. And that's, that's Jesus, what Daniel is seeing, is this very same thing. Verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Now, look in response. The cry goes out, There is one that's worthy. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. 
the root of David. And then John sees a lamb standing as though he were slain. He has conquered. He is worthy. He is deserving to unpack all of this, to to break the seals of the scroll, to unroll the scroll. In other words, to, to keep everything moving towards its proper end. And not only that, but to bring it to its completion. We get criticized as Christians for talking about judgment and the fact that there's going to be a judgment. Um, how do we know there's going to be a judgment? Well, because God has told us. He's made that known to us in His Word. And you know what? He's able to do it. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Scripture, scripture tells us. Well, what if, what, if some, you know, what if somebody chooses to appear? Chooses not to appear, rather. What if, you know, what if they say, you know, I reject that. I reject that summons. I'm not going to be there. <laughs> Guess what? They're going to be there. Now, you know, in man's court, I've been in a courtroom where that happened. You know, somebody was summoned to jury duty and they didn't show up. And, and uh, uh, of course, they, they, they take that very seriously. And uh, they, they send somebody after you is what happens. But, but, but at least right there at that moment, they got away with it temporarily, didn't they? I mean, they didn't show up, and so now the court's got to go to trouble to get them, to get them there. But disappointment, nobody's going to miss this. You'll be there. I'll be there. God is able to do that. Now, here's the response. And notice this. I mean, this is, this is the response. And, and we're going to see in all of heaven and in all of earth, among all of the created order, what is the response to the Lamb who is worthy to bring all of history to its proper end? Well, it is praise, worship. And so they began to cry out. In fact, we've got three different things recorded here in terms of, of uh, actual quotes of praise. So let's, let's look at the first one. Let's start in verse 8. It says, when he, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Now remember back in chapter 4, they were falling down worshiping God. Now at this point, they fall down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In, in some sense, some way, I, I mean, what is pictured here, our prayers before the throne of God, being held in, in really saucers is the, 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 the word here. It's like a, not like a bowl, like we think of a cereal bowl, but a flat, flat uh, type surface. Um, so that's the picture. You know, they, they've got um, harps and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. They're, they're, they're singing this song of praise to the Lamb. Worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For, now here's part of what I want to zero in on. And we already did this a little bit. You look back in verse 5. It says, The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is worthy. Why? Because he conquered. Now, here's a little more detail down here in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So, so they're talking about the, the accomplishments of the Lamb, right? And they're giving us some, some, uh, some details, some insight on how He conquered. What did He do? Well, here's what He did. First of all, He was slain. That doesn't sound like a great accomplishment. I mean, you know, you think, well, well now, wait a minute. You, know, that's, you, you can be passive in that, right? And, and just uh, somebody kills you. What's, what's, so, uh, what's so great about that? Well, he goes on to tell us. For you were slain, and by your blood. All right, the term blood there is just a way of referencing his death. You, you see this many, 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 many times in the Scripture. Um, in other words, by your death. You were slain, and by your death... You ransomed people for God. You actually, by your blood, by your death, you actually purchased people for God. Now, that's strange, isn't it? I mean, he, 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 was, he was killed, he was murdered, he was slain. That's the word there. But, by being murdered, he made a payment, a purchase. He purchased a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We talked about that a lot of times. Listen, when, when we get to glory, <laughs> we're going to see the, 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 the full church, right? The whole church. All of the people of God. The kingdom of God. And it's going to be people from every ethnic group. Right? Every, the way he says it here, every tribe and language, and people, and nation. Not just, not just Jews. Or today, it seems like a lot of times, it, you know, it's almost like, our, well, you know, we have a tendency in our country as well, just like the Jews did, of confusing our kingdom with His kingdom. And it's, it's not, you know, it's not going to be uh, uh, Americans. It's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He purchased a people to Himself out from every people group. He accomplished that in His death. You were slain, and in your death you bought a people for God from every people group. So that's, that's number one. Worthy. You're worthy. Why? Because you were slain, and in being slain you purchased a people for God. And then secondly, you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So here's another way to it, to, to look at the, 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 what the, the taking of the scroll represents. Well, it's, it's the establishment of the kingdom. In fact, I would... I would I would say it this way, it's the establishment of the kingdom, but also, again, um, the completion of it. That is, establishing it, bringing it to its fullness. And he was able to do that in his death, in going to the cross, in laying down his own life. He purchased a people for God from every ethnic group, from every people group, and He has made us a kingdom. He has, he has created. Just like He told Abraham He would. 
He has created a people for God. Out, out from all of the people groups of the world, He has created a single unified kingdom. That's an amazing thing. We, we don't, I, you know, I told them when we were down in Mexico when I had the, the privilege of speaking there, um, you know, there are a lot of differences among us. But you know what? We are unified in Christ. We are united in Him. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't care what your skin color is, what your hair color is. I don't care what kind of accent you got. And, uh, you know, they couldn't even understand mine because I was speaking a different language. I had to have an interpreter. Um, but, but, but in spite of that, we were brothers and sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. He has made us a kingdom. And He's made us priests to our God so that, so that we can offer acceptable worship to God. That's an astounding thing because because of our sin, we were not able to do that. And it's not about good deeds outweighing bad deeds. You say, well, I know I do a lot of bad things, but I'm, I'm really, really trying to do some good stuff and, and so, so that my good things will outweigh my bad things. You, you stay on that road and you're headed for hell for sure. Our, our only hope of being right before God and being able to, to come to Him and worship Him is what Christ did in His death on the cross. That, that's our only hope. And, and what, the, what they're declaring here, what John is seeing here, what is being shown to him is that He accomplished that. That's what He means. He conquered. What did He conquer? He conquered death. And listen, He conquered, de- he conquered death Himself. They, they killed Him. And they took him down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. And when they came back the third day, when the women came back to anoint his body, he was gone. They, they, they found a, a tomb, but the tomb was empty. He was gone. And one writer said, I don't even know who it was. One writer said, you know, the, the, the stone was rolled away. Not for his benefit, but for ours. It wasn't so that he could get out. It was so that we could see in. And see that the thing was empty. And they did. The, the, the tomb was empty. He's gone. He conquered death. Everybody that's done that, you know, raise your hand. I know. You, there's some people out there that have some best-selling books that say they've done that. But listen. Jesus got up from the dead and He got up under His own power. He laid His life down uh, by His own will. Got up under His own power. He conquered death. But you know what? We're looking at this. He made them a kingdom and a priest. He conquered death for us. He conquered death for us. The only way we could be included in the kingdom is for our sin, our rebellion. Think about that a moment. Sin, the essence of sin is is rebellion. That's all it is. And when I say that's all, I don't mean like that's insignificant. I'm just saying that's the essence of it. It's rebellion against God. So if you're in rebellion against the king, how are you going to be? How are you going to be part of the kingdom? You're not. I mean, that's got to be dealt with. And the only way for us to be a part of the kingdom is for our rebellion to be dealt with. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the price. He ransomed. He bought. He bought a people for God. He paid the price for our rebellion. Say, how did He do that? Because He took our penalty. He took our penalty on Himself. He paid the debt that you and I 
owed for all of our sins. And you can put it, sometimes people make a big deal out of singular, plural. Look, write it either way. Sin, sins. He took care of it. He paid the price. And, and the price, His death was sufficient. So He conquered death for us. So in doing that, He made us a kingdom and priest to our God so that we can do what He says we must do in John 4, worship Him in spirit and in truth. I mean, He doesn't say, get a, you know, get a better building. That's what God's looking for. Get a better program. That's what God wants. Get a more eloquent preacher. And y'all be doing it. He, he doesn't say all that. He says, look, God is looking for someone who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Well, all of us, you know, all of us are bankrupt when it comes to those things, so it looks like there's no hope. But there is hope, again, in what He did at Calvary. In, what he, in fact, let's just broaden that out a little bit. In what He did in His life, in His death, and in His resurrection. He has purchased these things. He made us a kingdom. He made us priests to our God. And we shall reign on earth. (laughs) How is that? Because we're in Him. And because He reigns. Real quick, I want to show you two more things and we're done here. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders... The voice of many angels. Remember the, the first little praise there in verses 9 and 10? That was the, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. This time, it is myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels saying with a loud voice in verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb. Now they're saying it. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So first of all, in the first one, they're saying He's worthy to take the scroll and break the seals to bring all of history to its proper and appointed end, including the judgment of the world and the salvation, fullness of salvation of God's people. He's worthy to do all that because He died, and in dying He ransomed the people unto God. So they're giving a because, right? He's worthy because. But this time, they're saying He's worthy for. In other words, the deserving one deserves something. What does He deserve? All power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. He is, he's worthy to receive these things. And it's not just so that we can sit back and say, hmm, my, my, that, that's, he's, wow. No, it's so that we can do it. <laughs> so, so that we can bless Him. So that we can attribute honor and glory and praise to Him. So that we can do what the Psalms, in fact, all of Scripture calls for, right? Give glory to Him that is due, right? Give the glory to Him that is due. Why? Because He's worthy. Because He's deserving. And He deserves all of those things. In fact, He says in Matthew 28, All authority is given unto Me, right? In heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. So He's he's got all authority in heaven and on earth. And the angels are crying out here, 
Acknowledge that. Give Him the glory He's due. Attribute that to Him. And then He says, here's the third one. In verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven. Notice, first it's the four creatures and the 24 elders, and then in in, uh, chapter 12, it's myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels. And now it's every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Again, he's just being thorough, isn't he, he, with with his language. Every creature everywhere saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice that. Remember in chapter 4, where was all the focus? On the one who's seated on the throne. You get to chapter 5. The focus shifts. Where? To the Lamb. To the Lamb. Uh Uh-oh. And and over over chapter 4, they're all praising Him who sits on on the throne. Chapter 5, they're all praising the the Lamb. Uh Uh-oh. We got a conflict. A rivalry. Two gods. No. No. It's, it's the one thrice holy triune God. Father, Son, Spirit. And so now, you know, you got praise to the Father and praise to the Son. And then you get to verse 13 and all of that is brought together. No competition. It's unified. It's brought together to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Literally there, it's to the ages of the ages. They're saying, give Him the glory into the ages of the ages. I mean, just, just keep, it, keep it rolling because He's worthy. Give Him the glory He's due. For, for 30 seconds? For 5 minutes? No. Into the ages of the ages. Forever and ever. And the four living creatures did what every one of us should have just done. They said, Amen! (laughs) Amen! He's worthy! And you know what? This is kind of like Jesus saying in John 3, Unless a man is born again, or born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is sort of like that. Unless you see the worth of Christ, you will not reign with Him. He has made us a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. But He has to be everything. Let me just say it this way. To the people in the kingdom, Christ is all. He, he is worth all, and there is no close second. Paul said in Philippians 3 that he considered everything as dung, rubbish, manure, refuse, whatever word you want to use, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And all those other things Paul said that I once put so much value on, I now count as loss. I put them under the the, the category of loss. And Christ is gain. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Why? Because He is worthy. We, we We need to know that every day of life. We need to know that as we go through this book. 
He has given us these things, this revelation He's given us, so that in Him we might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. That's straight from Jesus. Take heart. Take heart, He says, because I have conquered the world. Would you stand? If you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you do not know, what I mean by that is if you do not know that He paid for your sins when He died, that He rose again and that you were raised to newness of life because of His resurrection, if you are not following Him, that's what it means to know Him, to follow Him, to live in obedience to Him, then you can have no real peace. You cannot. You, you can have a counterfeit. You may have peace of some sort, but it's only temporary, and it'll end in sudden destruction. If you want true peace, true peace with God, I'm not just talking about peace of mind, although that's good, um, but I'm talking about being at peace with God so that, so that you're no longer at war with Him and He's no longer at war with you, and so that you know you don't have to face His judgment in the end, if you want that peace, then you must submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Know Him as Lord and Savior. And as we pray and dismiss, I ask you to consider consider that today and consider where you are in relation to Him. If you'd like for somebody to pray with you, I'd be happy to do that. And there are others here who would as well. But hear me and take this admonition. Don't, don't leave here today without making an attempt to settle that. I mean, unless you're going to go straight home and get on your knees, before, get on your face before God. <laughs> but don't leave here and go about your normal business in doubt about your relationship with God. Let's pray. Bob, you mind praying for us? And we'll be dismissed.